Good morning. I don't want to be remembered as the guy that fell up the stairs, so I have to go a little slow. It's good to see everyone out this morning, especially those that are visiting with us. We're so thankful that you are with us and that uh, you've taken time uh, out of your weekend to worship God. I just I want to take just a moment and thank the men that lead our worship uh, in so many different ways. Uh, those of you that may not know, we meet for just a moment outside of uh, the walls of this assembly room uh, every Sunday morning and just talk for a moment and pray together. And the, the men that lead in every way are so intentional in the way they do that. They're so prepared. They're so mindful of the responsibility and the weight of what they are doing to make sure that, first of all, God is glorified, and secondly, that we are all edified and able to worship in a way uh, that brings us in a unified front before God. So just want to thank them for that. Tonight, we're going to come back, and we're going to do something uh, different than we've ever done here at Traders Point. We're going to come back tonight at 5 p.m., and we are going to be divided up uh, into groups, uh, four different groups, uh, to spend some time together talking about uh, in a much more in-depth way and try to uh, create more um, edification, more application for one another of the things we're going to talk about this morning. And so um, if you're a member here, you should be on a list. That list was emailed out. We know that there were some folks that were left off of that list. I promise you that was not intentional. Um, We're working some glitches out. This is something new, so please be patient with us in that. If you look at the monitors, uh, there are two monitors out here that have those lists on them. Uh, You should find your name. If it's not on the monitor, there's a hard copy in both of those areas that should have your name on the list. Again, if your name is not on the list, please understand that it was a mistake, and we want everyone to be here tonight. Um, We want all of our members to be here. We expect all of our members to be here tonight. Uh, This is a chance, if you haven't been coming on Sunday night, to make that a priority and to be a part of something that we think is going to be really good. But if you're visiting with us or you're a regular visitor, um, we want you to come too, and we'll find a place for you in one of those classrooms so that we can edify and strengthen one another. The kids age 4 through 5th grade will stay in here. Uh, The smaller children and then younger than that, and then uh, middle school through as old as we could possibly be uh, will be all together in one of those four rooms. So... We're going to talk for about 40 minutes. We'll have four talking points. Then we'll come back in here for a song and a prayer in the auditorium, and then we'll be dismissed tonight. So again, we look forward to that tonight, and we uh, want and expect uh, to see all of our members here for that. We're very excited about the opportunity for another year together here at Traders Point. There is so much good that is going on here. There's so much love in this family here. There's so much energy, so much talent here And it's so encouraging for us as your shepherds to watch individuals grow and to watch families grow as the years go by. And every year we suggest a theme. We've done this for a number of years, and this year's no different because we want to challenge ourselves and we want to challenge every member in their roles and their relationships with God and with each other to grow. And as we had mentioned a few weeks ago, my monitor's not working here, so I've got to make sure that it's coming up there. Our theme for this year is God and family first. And that's a challenging task, I want to tell you, when you really start to think about that. It, re- it applies to all of us, every one of us, regardless of whether we're young or old, whether we're married or unmarried. Even if your physical family is not here, 
in this area or if they're gone, they've passed on. Each of us is a part of a family here at Traders Point. So God and family first applies to every one of us. Here are just a few topics that we're going to talk about throughout this first trimester. Um, just to maybe get uh, the wheels turning a little bit, and we'll have some more that we'll add to this marriage and what God wants and expects for us through the story of Adam and Eve, raising godly and obedient children, honoring mothers and fathers, increasing our faith during our marriage through the story of Abraham and Sarah, saving our families as men, story of Noah, the sanctity of marriage and the frivolousness of divorce, pornography's effect on spouses and families, listening to God when dating and choosing a spouse, and what does it mean to be in God's family? When I was in graduate school many years ago, I became uh, friends with a number of my classmates, but one particular conversation that I had with another young man I will never forget. We were both in this, about the same age, the same stage of life. We were both grappling and struggling with the reality that this was going to be a lot of work and a lot of study and a lot of time. And we were both engaged uh, to young ladies to be married, and we were trying to balance that and figure out how to work through all that. And I remember having a conversation with him one day and saying to him that Karen was having a hard time being third right now. And he said, what do you mean third? And I said, well, God's first, school's second right now, and she's third. And he said to me, well, yeah, God's first in my life too, but I don't count that. And I'll never forget him saying that. You know, I think a whole lot of people are like that. God is first in my life, but I don't count that. I just assume that. I'll give my friend credit. At least he was honest enough to say it out loud. I think if we're honest with ourselves, there have been times in all of our lives, and maybe even for some of us right now, where that statement's true. We would answer that question, yes, God is first in my life, and maybe even believe it ourselves. Maybe believe it with all of our hearts. But the evidence of our priorities, the evidence of our choices, our behaviors, our speech, the decisions we make for and with our families would convict us of being dishonest with ourselves and being dishonest with God. I want to suggest to all of us this morning, including me, that if God is not truly first in your life, then no other relationship in your life, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your children, your parents, your spiritual family, your, your friends in life will ever be what God intends it to be for you if he's not first in your life. Let me put it another way. You will never enjoy the fullness of the blessings he can give you in every relationship unless he is first in your life. So with that introduction for the first trimester, I want to spend some time this morning digging into a little bit different angle on this that's very much related to our theme, and this is what we're really going to talk about when we come back tonight. What do you want your legacy to be? What do you want your personal legacy to be, your family legacy to be? What's the Stockton name going to mean in the future? What's the Woodison name going to need in the future? The Wilson name mean in the future? The Bard name mean in the future? And on and on and on. What do you want your legacy to be? I want you to take a look around this room for just a second. All the people from the youngest to the oldest. We have infants and we have some that are very elderly. Because in 100 years, none of them are going to be here. Chances are very, very slim that in 100 years, anyone sitting in this room will be here. 
New generations will come from us and from others, and if the Lord wills that this earth still exists, then new people will fill these pews if this building still exists. And in 100 years, all new people. So a reasonable question to ask ourselves is, do we have a responsibility right now to those who will live on this earth 100 years from now, 50 years from now? People, family members, we will never, ever know or see. I believe the answer to that question is a resounding yes, and I believe the Lord believes that the answer to that question is a resounding yes. And we can find that in Scripture. To think of this in terms of in 100 years there will be all new people, I think can elicit a number of responses. But I want to look at three briefly this morning for us to consider. And the first response is one of apathy. I don't really care who's going to be here in 100 years because I'm not going to be here, right? It's one that you would expect to hear from a very worldly person, one who's living their life to get everything they can possibly get while they're here right now. And I'm not going to spend much time at all on this attitude because I don't believe any one of us here has that attitude. I certainly hope that we don't. This person would demonstrate a very self-serving attitude and make no provisions for those that will come after them, either spiritual or physical. The rich man in Luke 12, 16 through 21, is a good example. The rich fool who demonstrates this attitude, all he was interested in was storing up for himself, and the Lord called him a fool. Your soul is going to be required of you this very night. But consider this. I don't think any of us are actively like this, but consider this. Could we be passively guilty of this? Could we be passively guilty of not caring because I won't be here if we do nothing at all to make a difference for those that will come later in 50 or 100 years? For those that are here long after we're gone, in other words, we may not be trying to get all we can, but we do nothing at all. And in a sense, we might be saying, I really don't care. Or maybe we could have this response when we hear that there's going to be all new people in 100 years, one of sadness or despair. You know, one aspect of this, I'm sorry, I've got to keep turning around, but I just don't trust this... Uh, that my clicking is keeping up with my sermon. Um, a sadness of despair that all that, I've, all that I've owned and all that I've worked for is going to belong to somebody else. And I've worked really hard. I've worked really hard for the things that, that I think I own and the things I've worked for. And you know what? That is absolutely correct. Someone else is going to own what you've worked for. And someone else might not appreciate what you've worked for. Long after you're gone, or maybe even while you're here. I learned this lesson many times over through the years when we sold our house to Dwayne and Jenny, right? <laughs> I broke my back doing some landscaping in the backyard with river rock and flower beds. And one of the first things Dwayne did when he moved in was he tore it all out. <laughs> but you know what? It's his right to do it because he owns it now. I don't own it. I thought it was great. He didn't. He can do whatever he wants to with it. So it's absolutely truth. the truth. That's going to happen. Whatever we have, whatever we possess, someone else is going to have it, and they may or may not take care of it. And Solomon addresses this very thing in the book of Ecclesiastes. And there's no one better to address this topic than Solomon because he had everything. And in chapter 2, he spends a fair amount of time in that chapter at the beginning in verses 2 through 11 talking about all the things he's accumulated, all the things that he has brought into his life. And listen to what he says then beginning in verse 18, or 17 actually. 
In verse 17, he says this, So I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun. It was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after the wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I've labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor which I labored under the sun. But Solomon has a conclusion about all of this. He felt that way, but he had a conclusion later in the chapter. Beginning in verse 24, he says this, There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I've seen that is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For a person, for to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner, he's given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. These are Solomon's conclusions. All these material things are from God. And all of us, as was mentioned just a few moments ago by Seth here at the table, all of us are blessed beyond measure with so much excess. Should we feel guilty for having nice things as a result of our labor and work? No. The Lord makes this point. We shouldn't feel guilty. They're gifts from Him. In fact, later on in Ecclesiastes, in chapter 9, verse 10, He talks about how, how, diligent, how diligently we should work with our hands. Number two, God wants us to enjoy these material gifts that He's given us. Verse 6 says, For without Him, 26, I'm sorry, says, For without Him, who can eat or find enjoyment? But God has to be a part of that enjoyment. And then finally, we'll only enjoy them if we understand their temporal nature. I would suggest to us, if this is one of our worries, that once we're gone, these things aren't going to be taken care of the way we think they should, if this is one of our worries, one of our fears, then perhaps our priorities are out of order. But secondly, under this, under this point, we can have fear for those who will be left behind, those we will never know. Look, I think we've all probably been guilty of worrying about things that we can't control, worrying about things that may or may not ever happen. And I, I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that 100 years ago, the brethren who began this work, and this work is over 100 years old, the brethren that began this work probably worried about those they would leave behind and what effect uh, it would have on the church, what culture would have on the church. They probably worried about how technology then might affect things in the future. They probably worried about the moral climate in years to come. And today we sit here and we worry about the future and what it may hold for our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, future generations. What, what will happen if global warming actually takes place as predicted and huge glaciers melt? And, and now that homosexuality and transgenderism and every other form of gender identity are accepted, what's next in our society? Will our society become a victim of its own information network? What about artificial intelligence? Will our children and our grandchildren be on constant guard against terrorism? Will our country be able to survive? Will the church be able to survive? What if, what if, what if, what if, and on and on we go in our minds. And it's a waste of our time. You know, in Job chapter 38, in verses 1 through 18, Job has gone through a tremendously difficult period in his life that he has no explanation for. And God spends several verses here explaining to him that he's in control and that Job may never understand why these things happen. But God has been in control from the beginning. He set things in motion. He keeps things in motion. And that's the message for us today, too. Look, 
global warming may or may not be an actual event that is taking place right now. I'm not smart enough to know that. We very well could lose parts of continents to water, whole regions. Maybe we will. There very well could be a dramatic effect on the world because of that. And even if all that happens, God is still in control. And there will be no constant threat of terrorism unless God allows it. There will be no declining moral society unless God allows it. The conditions, I would suggest to you, that affected God's people under Babylonian captivity would very likely parallel the nuclear holocaust in our day and time, relatively speaking. But his people were taken care of, and they were delivered. And if not, then so much the better. We go to be with him in heaven, right? We're not immune to these things. Just ask the New Testament Christians who were sawn in half, who were lit on fire as torches for the Roman Empire. We are not immune to these things. But we know this for sure. Satan will never win out. He's not going to win out now. He's not going to win out in the future because he's been defeated, and he was defeated at the cross. So I can be confident of these things. In Psalm 37, 25, I was young and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. Matthew 6, 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And Philippians 4, 6 through 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I think, and look, I'm a worrier. I'll admit it. We desperately need to understand, and I desperately need to understand, we don't have time to worry. We don't have time to spare to worry. There's too much to be done and wonder about things that may not happen. Our job is not to worry about future generations. Our job is to prepare future generations. And for those who might say something as silly as this, how can you even consider having a child in a culture like this? I would say, how can you not consider it? How can you not consider it? So really, I think there's only one response to the statement that in 100 years there will be all the people that is acceptable, and that response is, it's an opportunity for me and my family to make a difference. And if we're truly going to make a difference, then God and family have to come first. And that means that time and sacrifice will be required on all of our parts. For those that follow sports or maybe even entertainment, there's a, there's a term or phrase that I've heard used a little more commonly over the past few years um, in regard to professional athletes um, or entertainers who have come into large sums of money, like the Patrick Mahomes contract of half a billion dollars, okay, and some of these major league baseball contracts and some of the money these entertainers make. And the phrase that's used is generational wealth. And what that means if you don't know what that means, you probably do, but I'm going to explain it anyway because it's in my sermon notes. Um, what that means is that you have so much money that for generations as far out as you can think of, they're never going to need a thing. They are taken care of. A half a billion dollars is going to take care of a lot of people for a long time, right? A long time. But I want to suggest to us this morning that we have an opportunity to provide generational spiritual wealth generational spiritual wealth to our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren for generations to come.
something so much more powerful, something so much more valuable than money or things. And even if you don't have children, even if you don't plan on having children, as a member of this Lord's body, you still have a responsibility to invest in the future. You still have a responsibility to invest in the young people of this congregation, to encourage them, to strengthen them, and edify them, and build them up for the future. Because you have an opportunity to make a difference in a soul, a soul that you may never meet, a soul that may never even be born into this world while we are in this world. Because all of these things that we do, whether we're married or not, whether we have children or not, if we're looking to the future to prepare the future, all of these things make differences. They make differences. The beautiful thing, though, for those that have chosen to have children, that our parents, is that our children are given to us as an opportunity to teach with a clean slate. They don't have any influence affecting them when they come to us. And before they can begin to understand who God is, you, mom and dad, are a representation to them of God. So it's an opportunity we have to take advantage of, and there will be no excuse for us not teaching our children. We only get one shot at this. We've been studying in Joshua, um, the first few chapters as we've begun this trimester, the amazing stories of, of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. And if you're not familiar with that passage, or you haven't studied it in a while, there in the first few chapters of Joshua, the, the land is ready for the children of Israel to take it. God is fulfilling his promise, and they're standing at the Jordan, and they're going to cross the Jordan, and the priests are going to go into the water, and the water's going to separate. For about 16 miles of length of the Jordan River, the water has separated and dried up, and a million to two million people are going to walk across the Jordan River. And then they're going to get across, and the water's going to fill back in. But before it fills back in, Joshua has appointed one man from each tribe to pick a stone out of the Jordan River and carry it on their shoulders to Gilgal. And they carry it on their shoulders to Gilgal for this very special purpose. Beginning in Joshua four nineteen through 24, it reads, The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord, that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. For generations to come, this monument that was set up with these 12 stones was to serve as a reminder to all the people that passed by there how mighty God was and what he had done for the people. So those future generations at the end of verse there, 24 would fear the Lord forever. Anytime a, a family passed through Gilgal, there was an opportunity for a father or a mother to have a conversation with their child or a grandchild about what the Lord had done for them. And God expected his people to have a responsibility to future generations. But maybe perhaps one of the saddest commentaries in all of Scripture is recorded in Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, where it reads, And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. 
And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered through their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Read that sentence again. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods. From among the other gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. How could this happen so quickly? Within just a generation or two, how could it happen so quickly? Parents, obviously, fathers obviously did not fulfill their responsibility to God or to their children. God and family were not first in their lives for this to happen this quickly. So how do we avoid these mistakes? How do we make sure that we keep God and family first so we can have that impact? As I mentioned before, it's going to require time and sacrifice. It's going to require intentional investment of our time, which means we have to be willing to sacrifice. You know, time is one of the things, the very few things that we all have the same amount of. Every one of us has the same amount of time, but it never stands still, and it can never be recovered. Yet it's probably the most wasted resource we have. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 for a moment together and see if we can draw some application for how we can make sure we're doing this in a way that impacts future generations. Let's begin in verse 1 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you were to do that you might do them in the land where you're going to possess it. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all the statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly. Just as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. When we consider this text, and we've read this text a number of times, but when we consider this text, we're not talking about a Bible story here or there with our kids. Nor are we talking about having a Bible study all day long, every day with our children. We're talking about a way of life that shows our children and those we can have an impact on how important God is to us in every aspect of our life, how important Jesus Christ is to us. Not how good we are at following rules, but how important a relationship with God and Jesus Christ are to us in every aspect of our lives. And the bottom line is if we don't find ourselves talking to those that are our children or our grandchildren or those that we care so much about, about these things and looking for ways and opportunities to guide them in God's word, then we're no different than the Israelites. We're no different. And in generations to come, whether it be sooner or later, the same thing will be said. There will be a generation arises that does not know God. 
This takes time, and it takes a lot of time. And I think one of the lies that Satan has got so many to buy into and some of us to buy into is that quality time with our children is more important than quantity of time. And that's a lie. It's nonsense. Quantity, I'm sorry, quality of time only occurs because of quantity of time. You can't schedule quality time. How many, as parents here, have had unbelievably great conversations with your children that occurred spontaneously just because you were spending time with them that wasn't necessarily intended to be quality time. That's the way it happens. We have to spend time with our families. We have to spend time with our children. The values that are taught to our children are not taught in a sense that we can just sit down with them and say, this is what we do and this is what we believe. They're taught and learned through lessons in life when they watch us and hear us and see how we act and interact. And that can't happen unless we're with our families and with our children. Because the hurried and busy lives that we live so often interfere with almost everything or many things that Christianity stands for. And it prevents us from communicating. So that means that in order to have quality time and quantity time, that means I've got to give things up. I've got to give things up. It's got to be sacrificed some of the things I want to do. I may never be as good at a particular sport or particular hobby that I might want to be. I may never reach the position in my field of work that is deemed successful by the world. I may never, as a mother, put my education, my college education, to use in a workplace. And you know what? That's all okay. Because now we're talking about a legacy that's worth something. We're talking about a legacy that's worth something if we've got generations after us that are godly. Some of us may be under the delusion that children will be great Christians just because their parents were. Maybe their parents were um, an elder, an elder's wife, a preacher, a preacher's wife, Bible class teacher, Bible class teacher's wife. So my kids are going to grow into that same strong Christian role. It doesn't happen that way. It only happens through sacrifice and hard work and fervent prayer. And even with all of that, the decision's still going to be up to them. And that's the scary part. We can do everything we know to do, but the decision is still ultimately going to be up to them as to whether or not they want to serve God. I don't think there's probably a single parent in this room that doesn't regret in some way the way they've managed their time in regards to their children or maybe the way they've managed their sacrifice in regards to their families or to God. But it doesn't have to continue down that road. We push our kids in so many directions to excel at so many things. But we need more Christians, right? We don't need more athletes. We don't need more doctors. We don't need more attorneys. We need Christians for the future, for generations to come. It's been said that our children are the message that we send into a time we will never see, and we have no idea what type of impact we may have on the future. But I will tell you that we will have an impact and it will either be positive or it will be negative. And we have an opportunity to make it positive. So let's make sure that as we move forward in this beginning of this new year and in years to come that we focus on that, that we make it intentional in the way we live our lives, that not only are we having an impact now, but an impact on the future. Thank you so much for your attention this morning. There may be someone here this morning that doesn't have a relationship with God, 
that wants a relationship with God, and we can help you with that. You can come to the front this morning and, and let us know that you want that. You can confess that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and we can assist you in baptizing you for the remission of your sins, and you can start a relationship with him this very morning. Or if there's someone here that has that relationship already, and maybe they're struggling, maybe there's some things we've talked about this morning you need to take care of in your relationship with God, first and foremost, and you can certainly do that from your seat. But if you need the prayers of this congregation for encouragement or strength, we are certainly willing to help you with that too. But if there's anything we can do to help, please let us know as we stand and sing.